Hello everyone, 2023 has finally arrived and I want to start out by thanking you all so much for tuning in for the second year of this podcast. I want to start out by letting all of you loyal listeners know how much I really do appreciate the continued support of the Paranormal Exposed podcast. It's been a really amazing year and I am amazed at how much this podcast has grown. I wouldn't be here without any of you, so thank you, and I hope you're having a great new year, and that this new year brings you everything that you were hoping for. And for those of you tuning in for the first time, thank you for giving this podcast a chance, and I really hope you do enjoy it. So welcome to enjoying another fact-based paranormal episode from this open-minded skeptic, and your host, me, Michelle. Join me every Wednesday as I dive into a different paranormal topic and I present to you what is real, what is not real, and what might just be in between. I will present both the historical facts as well as the paranormal reports, and we will see where the two meet. So join me in exposing the paranormal. In this first episode of the new year, I will be going to the Great White North of the United States and cover the tales of the Kennecott Copper Mines located in Kennecott, Alaska. Alaska is a beautiful and largely still undeveloped state here in the U.S. and it is widely used for its abundantly untapped resources. And that includes things such as drilling for oil, hunting for animals, and mining various ores and other resources in the state. The town of Kennecott, Alaska actually borders a four-mile-wide glacier called the Kennecott Glacier, as well as the Wrangell Mountain Range. And if you haven't guessed, Kennecott Glacier is why the town of Kennecott got its name. Now, in the area were a local indigenous tribe known as the Copper River Tribe. And when settlers arrived in the area, they found that indigenous people had many items that they had made out of copper. And this, of course, led these people to believe that copper was here ready to be mined and waiting just for them to make their money. The government found out about this and sent in Tons of search parties to try and locate various copper sources in this very rugged terrain. And because of this terrain, many early attempts ended in utter failure or even death. Then, in 1898, copper was finally found near the Copper River, sending a rush of prospectors to the area who all wanted to claim their fame and fortune. This paranormal tale starts with a group of prospectors looking to strike it rich by mining precious metals, mainly copper. For about two years, this group of prospectors had been in the area and had already discovered one mine called the Nikolai Mine in the year 1899. And they only did this with the help of the local indigenous people. They were actually headed on their way back to the Nikolai Mine in the summer of 1900 after a winter off when they were joined by two very experienced miners named 
Clarence Warner and Jack Smith. So Jack and Clarence actually split off from the main group to prospect along the Kennecott Glacier and kind of see what was going on over there. They were scoping out the area and noted that about 6,000 feet up above their heads was a long green stretch that looked like grass. And they were a little confused as there was no way that grass was going to be growing in that climate and at that high of an elevation. So the two men decided to climb up and see what the deal was. And luckily for them, they did. Because when they got about 4,000 feet up, they saw that, of course, it wasn't green grass that they had spotted. It was something called malachite and calcasite. And the huge cliffs were rich with the stuff. Now, malachite is a green precious gemstone. And calcasite is actually a copper ore. And it was found that the calcasite ore was actually 70% copper with silver and trace amounts of gold in it. So it was a pretty stunning find. Now Jack and Clarence, they could have staked the claim on the mine and kind of did it on their own, but two men cannot mine an entire mountain on their own, and they really didn't have a lot of financial backing. So what they did is they rushed back to meet up with the other prospectors that were at the Nikolai mine. Jack and Clarence, along with nine other men, returned to investigate and stake their claim over near the Kennecott Glacier. And each of these 11 men had equal ownership of the mine and any profits that came out of them. So eventually, these 11 men sold their rights to a single man named Stephen Birch and you can't really blame them, as the money they were given would be the equivalent of almost $900,000 today. So, not a bad steal for finding the mine. Stephen Birch ran a company under the ownership of the Alaska Copper and Coal Company and continued to run it until 1908 as president of the now Kennecott Copper Corporation. The corporation and mines were named after the Kennecott Glacier in the valley below the mountain ridges where the ore was located. So remember, we are in Alaska. This is a widely undeveloped area even by today's standards, let alone in the 18-1900s. So what they needed was a way to get workers to and from the area, supplies to and from the area, as well as bring the mined ore away from the area. So what they needed was a railroad. And this was not going to be a small feat, as the weather is pretty cold, the terrain is undeveloped and rugged, and there is nothing around for hundreds and hundreds of miles. But regardless of all these things working against them, the company had a 200-mile railroad built that crossed frigid waterways, traversed elevation changes, and even managed to get over icy snow-covered paths. This took about three years to complete and cost the company $23 million, which would be over $700 million today. There was also a crew that was as large, if not bigger, than the mining crew 
and they were needed just to maintain the railways. And this was to keep them clear of snow and ice, make sure everything was okay, make sure animals weren't dead on the tracks, things like that. And four miles from the mine was the town of Kennecott itself, in which the miners and their families lived. At the height of the copper mining boom, there was about 600 workers living here plus their families. This would include wives and children. Now again, this is a very remote place and not high on anyone's top 10 lists of places they'd like to work. I mean, I can't imagine anybody saying, hey, you know what, let's go live in the middle of nowhere where the temperatures are horrible and there's nothing around for miles. But, the company offered so much more money than any other mills that it was hard for the men to say no. But even with more money, the conditions were really, really hard, with most workers actually taking on shifts seven days a week for months and months on end. Add into this blizzards with temperatures as low as 40 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, dangers with mining, and various other issues. I mean, were the higher pay rates really worth it at the end of the day? I guess you'd have to ask yourself that question. In the town, a power plant and aerial tramways were built as well. The power plant was built to not only power the town, but also to power the tram. The trams themselves were used to transport the copper off the mountain and bring it to the mill which was built in the town. The mill would then crush the ore, sort the ore, and treat it so that it could be used. In the beginning, there were just two tramways built that were heading to the mines, as there was two at that point, the Bonanza Mine and the Jumbo Mine. By 1916, the Kennecott mines were actually the most important producers of copper for the World War I effort. Between the two mines, they actually averaged about 10 million pounds of ore a month, which is pretty impressive. But it wasn't enough. They wanted more as, again, the demand was really high with the war effort. So the company further bolstered profit by allowing another mine called the Motherlode Mine to use their equipment as long as they got 51% profit and control of the company. And the two men who owned the operation really didn't have any choice, so they agreed. And you might remember the two men from the beginning of the story as the two men were Jack and Clarence who had originally discovered the Kennecott Glacier Mine. Another one of the Kennecott mines was called the Erie Mine, though it was pretty high up at about 12,000 feet and discovered much later on in the Kennecott Mine's history. The last of the mines that would make up the Kennecott Mines was the Glacier Mine, and this was the smallest and the smallest producer. And this was because it was an open pit mine while all the other ones were basically tunnel-based. So they could only do mining here in the summer because of blizzards, weather conditions, cold, and all that fun stuff. The company then had five mines, so they needed more aerial trams to transport ore, with a total of four being completed. 
And by 1920, they were actually tramming out 1,200 tons of ore a day, which is an extra 400 tons in four years. After over 30 years of mining production, the Kennecott mines were starting to dry up, so they weren't getting as much product out of the mines as they were before. But this wasn't the only issue the Kennecott Mining Company was facing. They also had the issue of the war was over, so the demand for their copper was much less. And the product they were selling, they were receiving a lot less money per pound of that product. So they had to find a way to cut their losses. So they diverted their workers and actually closed the glacier mine in 1929. They continued on with the other four mines for nine years until 1938 when they ended up closing the remaining four mines as well. Now over the decades, over four and a half million tons of ore were mined in the five Kennecott mines, and they had gotten about 600 tons of copper and nine million ounces of silver. It is estimated that over $100 million in profit were made during that time, which would be about $3.5 billion today. So definitely not a shabby business venture. With the mines dried up and closed, there was really no reason for anyone to stay in Kennecott. So pretty much everyone, of course, chose to leave. The end of 1938 saw the last train carrying workers and their family leave the town of Kennecott, leaving it a virtual ghost town. Though no one wanted to see this historical place left to rot away. So from 1939 to 1952, one family stayed on at the Kennecott ghost town. They were three family members who basically served as watchmen over the town, though eventually they ended up leaving as well. In the 1960s, someone attempted to mine again using airplanes for transport versus the railroad system, but it turned out to be not cost-effective at all, and weather conditions were hard, so they quickly ended that venture and the last attempts to actually mine the Kennecott mine. At one point, the company that owned the land rights chose to demolish the town so that they couldn't be held liable if something happened in the town to someone. The demolition crew set to work, but the manpower and money that it would take to demolish this whole town was astronomical. So it was ultimately deemed too much, and most of the town remained standing, other than a few roofs and things like that the demolition crew had taken down. In 1980, the Wrangell-St. Elias National Park and Preserve was established, with Kennecott being a part of this huge national park, which actually spans over 13 million acres and is the largest national park in the United States. After this, Kennecott quickly became a pretty popular tourist destination in Alaska, with Tourists coming to the area to see how things work, see the mines, and explore the ghost town. 
People did provide tours of Kennecott, but no one actually lived there. The workers who did the tours lived in nearby towns and commuted to work each day. In addition to seeing these old mines in the town, tourists also flocked to the area to hike, see the glacier, and various other outdoor activities, including hunting. You can still hike up to the old mines, but be ready for a pretty strenuous hike that will take you pretty much an entire day. Though, you might want to avoid hiking up to the Erie Mine, as it's so high up that you actually have to scramble up some pretty wild terrain, and it can be pretty dangerous. So, if you are going to do it, make sure you are well prepared. And if you want to go, but are worried you can't handle it or you might get lost, there are local guides that will lead you up the mountain to check out the mine. As of 1986, Pennacott is safe from being demolished as it was named a National Historic Landmark. And in 1998, the National Park Service actually acquired ownership of the town of Kennecott. If you want to visit the area, keep in mind that it is pretty rough going. It is about an eight-hour drive from the closest major airport in Anchorage, Alaska. And the last 60 miles are on a very narrow gravel road, which will take you about two hours to navigate. And you're going to need a 4x4 vehicle. The reason it takes two hours is it is extremely dangerous with big, huge holes, washouts from glacier melting, It's just not a good thing. It's so bad that most rental car companies in the region strictly prohibit you from taking their vehicles down this specific road. And keep in mind, you can't drive right into the town of Kennecott by car. If you don't want to drive, you can take a shuttle from a nearby town of Chitina which is actually your safest option and allows you to enjoy the stunning long ride down this rugged path. Though it'll run you about $100 a person, which can sound pretty steep, but for all of those who have done it, they say that it's well worth the shuttle trip versus driving. Your shuttle cannot take you all the way through to Kennecott, When you exit the shuttle, you'll still be about five and a half miles away from your final destination, which leaves you with two basic options. You can either put your backpack on your back and hike out five and a half miles to the town of Kennecott, or you can pay an additional $15 a person for another shuttle that will take you to Kennecott. There is a lodge in Kennecott that you can stay at, but bookings are very, very limited. So if you do not have a booking way in advance, that will leave you the only other option in Kennecott of primitive camping in your tent or in a hammock or whatever you choose to do. If you aren't about camping, then the town of McCarthy is only four and a half miles away. And you can either walk there or take the shuttle back to the town where there is lodging, food, and shopping. 
You can explore the area on your own for free by picking up a map or looking at the map from the National Park Service on your phone. So there is limited service here, so make sure you kind of take a screenshot of that National Park Service map. If you would like a little extra history and to go into the buildings, there are guided tours as well, which are $34 a person for a two-hour tour. And I feel like if you've made it this far, I mean, why wouldn't you do the full tour? I mean, you've traveled by car over some crazy roads, you've hiked or shuttled in, you've already paid all this money. You might as well be able to get to go into the building because on your self-guided tour, you are not allowed to go in. If you do want to take this guided tour, make sure you make reservations well in advance as it does fill up pretty quickly. There are many structures on site to explore, including a schoolhouse, there are tennis courts, a dairy barn where cows had to be kept so that the town actually had a supply of milk, and there is a lodge that housed men and their families who managed the town and the mines. The recreation hall is still standing, and this is where social events such as dances and movie nights were held for those living in the town. In addition to the lodge, there are also cottages that were for more long-term employees who brought their families, and there were multiple bunkhouses for the men to live in who didn't have families with them. These bunkhouses were also where the men cooked, ate, entertained themselves, and slept while not at work. While you are in the town, you can also explore their post office, their train depot, the sawmill, the carpentry shop, and the refrigeration building, which kept their food cool to prevent spoiling. As again, there's no like local grocery store you can just go and shop at. The mining town also required medical staff on site as accidents and injuries happen quite frequently due to the nature of their work and the poor working conditions. And the town's hospital stands to this day and actually treated not only those in Kennecott, but people from all over the area. This town seems to keep going on and on because in addition to all the above structures I already named, it also has a machine shop, a building where the ore mined was tested for its purity, and a leaching plant, an electrical shop, and of course, the power plant. So in addition to providing electricity to the town and aerial trams, the power plant also generated steam heat, which was the sole source of heating for all the structures in the town of Kennecott. You will definitely have a lot to see on your tour, so make sure you have your walking shoes on and set aside a few hours for the adventure. Many of the above buildings I mentioned were in pretty rough shape from decades of abandonment and being in the harsh conditions of Alaska. The Park Service has made sure some of the buildings have been stabilized and updated to make them safe for your tour, such as is the case with the post office and the schoolhouse, which the schoolhouse is now the visitor center these days. Many of the buildings have gotten new roofs, 
foundations and walls, though construction is limited due to the short time frame of good weather in the area. On site, there is also the Kennecott Cemetery, which was used from the year 1908 to 1938, when mining ceased and the town became the ghost town it is. A cemetery and a ghost town. That reminds me that I have been talking forever without a single instance of paranormal activity. And this is a paranormal podcast, so I think it's time for us to get into some haunted tales. Many travelers heading down the road towards Kennecott will notice various tombstones just off the side of the road and by the nearby railroad. And sometimes these travelers will check them out through their car windows, and other times they'll stop and explore to actually look at the gravestones and what they say. That itself isn't too spooky, right? I mean, most of us have been in a graveyard, seen tombstones, especially anyone who's done any paranormal investigation. And tombstones are pretty normal when people are buried. The strange thing that freaks people out, though, is that when they drive back away from Kennecott, they will notice that the tombstones they saw earlier are not there at all. They seem to have vanished entirely. And that is because there are actually no tombstones located here, as they are all in Kennecott miles away from this location. And you might pass this off but this has been reported by many people over the years. And in addition to this, visitors claim that they can hear disembodied voices near the railroad tracks and throughout the entire town of Kennecott. Sometimes these voices sound like they're adults talking around them, but they can't quite make out what the spirits are actually saying. Other times, People have claimed to hear children laughing and carrying on as if they're playing. Maybe these spirits are reliving the fun they had here with their friends or enjoying the ice skating rink that used to be here. Full-bodied apparitions are seen in many places throughout the town of Kennecott. And many times they appear to be walking to work in the direction of the mine. Though, when you approach them, they quickly vanish. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you can hike the trails around Kennecott and hike up to the old mines. So be careful, because it is dangerous. Also, apparitions are seen here, and possibly the same ones who made it, from their ghostly walk to work. In addition to apparitions, there is a feeling of general unease. So, to be fair, I'd probably be pretty creeped out in any large underground tunnel or mining area. While in the dark, creepy mine, orbs are sometimes spotted, as well as mysterious, misty shapes that have no scientific explanation for being there. But the eeriest and most goosebump-inducing thing in the mine are the screams and the shouts. It sounds like the men are screaming for help. 
This could be maybe from a cave-in or other work operation accident, as these were not uncommon in any mining operation. The miners aren't the only apparitions spotted. The miners' loved ones are still here as well. In addition to the children heard playing, their apparitions will be seen in the town, with the main street of town being their favorite place to appear. Women are sometimes spotted in the town as well, and these may have been the wives, daughters, or workers such as nurses that lived here. Regardless, walking in the town is quite creepy at times, and visitors state that they feel as though they are being watched the entire time that they are there. Let's move a little bit outside of the main town and climb about 2,000 feet up to the bunkhouse for the men who worked in the Erie Mine. Allegedly, two hikers made their trek up the mountain to camp by the bunkhouse. While they were camping, they of course checked out the abandoned bunkhouse and eventually settled in for the night and went to sleep in their tent. Though the two campers awoke when they heard footsteps outside of their tent and no one else could possibly be up here with them. I mean, who's hiking 2,000 feet up the side of a mountain in the middle of the night? They also heard walking around in the cabin and the creaking of the wooden floorboards inside. The problem was that the bunkhouse was totally empty. And when they woke up in the morning, there were no footprints in the snow and nothing in the cabin had been disturbed. In the 1990s, Alaska wanted to build government housing in the area. So they sent a construction worker crew in to start breaking ground on the future site. This site is the same area where the phantom tombstones are frequently seen, though the construction workers were not having much luck in getting started with their undertaking. And the problem wasn't the weather, it was that they were being held back by various paranormal occurrences. The workers reported hearing voices all the time, from young children to grown adults, but of course, there was never anyone around. Worse off, they would hear screaming, angust wailing, many creepy sounds from the spirits in the area. And they also did spot the phantom tombstones from time to time. The workers had issues with their tools disappearing, and they actually would see their tools fly right out of their own tool belt. The constant paranormal events ran off the construction workers, which led to the government having to abandon the project altogether as they couldn't keep anyone working there. Could these be the spirits of the many men who are said to have died while building the railroad or during its upkeep? Well, let's look into the deaths at the mine a little more in depth. There were 50 people buried at the Kennecott Cemetery here over the 30 years that the cemetery was actually used. 
which was basically the entire time that the mine was up and running. The people who died here in Kennecott usually couldn't afford to be sent back home after their passing, so they were actually buried on site at the local cemetery, which was just about a mile outside of town. Many people here died of tragic causes and are buried here in the cemetery still today. And I'm going to give you a few examples. Oswald Heinz was a German immigrant working at the mine. And in 1916, he went to work here as a mucker, which basically means he shoveled the mine ore into a tram for a living. He died that same year in May of 1916 after being crushed by the machine that actually hauls the timber at the Bonanza mine. Another man, Rudolf Schwamli, who was also German, started working in the leaching plant in 1918. He was working in the plant on May 19th of 1919 when he was basically buried alive by the material spit out by one of the machines. The next death was not of a worker, but of a worker's son. Lester Olson was born in Kennecott and actually died when he was just over a year old after suffering a seizure. Swedish immigrants Louis Anderson and Swan Helgren both lost their lives in April of 1920 after breathing in powder gas in the Bonanza mine, where they basically suffocated to death. This also happened to the man named Halvor Larsen in April of 1924 and Sam Millick in October of 1924. Adolf Peterson also suffocated to death when he was accidentally buried under ore in one of the mines. And the Bonanza mine certainly saw its fair share of tragedy. In 1921, Rex Hansen was working in the mine shaft when he fell all the way to the bottom of the shaft. This caused his skull to be shattered in multiple places and eventually he died from his injuries. Also in the Bonanza mine, Frank Gramos died when a huge boulder fell onto him from 10 feet overhead. But the Bonanza mine isn't the only place people died. In the Motherlode mine, Toriato Cesari died after being crushed by falling rocks after 10 years of service in the mine. Also in the Motherlode Mines, Lucas Patarakis died when he was tangled up in machinery chains. Julian Florianovich was a Russian man who'd been working as a mucker for about two years when on Halloween of 1921, he took his own life by shooting himself in the head while in the Jumbo Mine bunkhouse. Gusto Devos came to Kennecott from Belgium, and after only six months of working at the mines, died in an explosion. Oscar Pritz died in October of 1923, when he accidentally fell off of a cliff while hunting. And in May of 1925, Carl Anderson committed suicide by jumping off of a cliff after five years working at the mine. Work accidents and suicides weren't the only causes of death here in Kennecott. 
Axel Matson didn't take his own life. He didn't die in an accident. He actually died while working in the jumbo mine. And one of his workmates murdered him. Sadly, there was a small baby named Baby Halbit who was never even given a first name. But this child passed away and that same year, the baby's father died after being crushed by a utility pole. Matthew Bernoski may be likely hanging out at the railroad track where apparitions are seen as he was killed by being crushed by a train. Many others died from other things that were more natural like appendicitis, kidney failure, pneumonia, there were strokes, heart attacks, and various other illnesses. So, that is a lot of deaths of various horrid causes. Painful deaths, suffocating, prolonged illnesses, murder, and hopelessness resulting in people taking their own lives. Could this be why so many spirits continue to remain here in Kennecott and the surrounding mines in their afterlife. Each mine experienced tragedy, as did many of the structures in the town. And those who passed away frequented these areas in life and now perhaps do so in death as well. I can imagine we may be experiencing the echoes of their life or seeing them continue their life as if they are still living it. Maybe they don't know that they've passed on. As far as the phantom tombstones, I'm not sure if these are related to the town of Kennecott or not. The stories of these sightings are very vague. They are stated to appear near the railroad by a dirt road and a field which is a pretty broad description for a railroad that runs 200 miles. Some of the accounts state that these phantom tombstones are near Kennecott, while other accounts say they are near Chitina, which is a 60-mile difference down that creepy, crazy long road. Another issue with the phantom tombstones is with all of the reports and sightings, no one has taken any photos of these phantom tombstones no one has stated what any of the descriptions might have been for how they looked or any writings that may have been on them. It's just, again, the vague sightings of, I saw a tombstone when I drove in and then it was gone. I also couldn't lock down where the stories came from about the construction crew being driven out of the site by paranormal activity. I just kept reading the same descriptions and account in various, various articles online. I scoured city planning records and found nothing about any development being done near Kennecott. And it also just doesn't make sense, as the closest town to Kennecott is McCarthy, which is tiny with no infrastructure to support any government housing project at all. To put that into perspective, this town in 2010 had 28 residents, and because of Tenecott tourism, a whopping 107 people now live there as of 2020. Also, add into that, the closest city after that is Chitina, which is 60 miles away down a gravel road that takes two hours to navigate. 
So this would make anyone out of their minds to think that a government housing project here would make sense. The only project I've seen is the construction to stabilize and revitalize Kennecott structures, which has been going off without a hitch. There have been no recent haunted reports from any of the groups involved in the revitalization of the town. I would love to one day visit this majestic landscape and pay my respects to the men and women who did so much to provide for this country. Due to the Park Service and a group called the Friends of Kennecott, this historic town will not only be kept from being demolished, but it will also continue to be revitalized. Have you ever been to Kennecott or would you go there? And if so, for what purpose? Because you think it's haunted? Because you would like to experience the history and the stunning landscape? Or maybe it's a mixture of all of these things. And last question, did you enjoy this episode? If you did, make sure you follow this podcast wherever you tune in. And also don't forget to leave a five-star review if you enjoyed it. Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, I would really appreciate you taking your time to review it on there, as with their analytical structure, it really does help push the podcast forward. I will also be posting pictures and links associated with this story on the Kennecott Copper Mines on the Paranormal Exposed social media websites, so make sure you check me out on social media. You can follow on Facebook at Paranormal Exposed on Instagram at The Paranormal Truth, or if there's anything you want to reach out to me directly about, you can always email me at paranormalexposedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I hope you all have a happy new year, and I will catch you all next Wednesday.